So I'm Nigel Shadbolt. Um, I'm uh, chairman and co-founder of this wonderful place, along with our president, Tim Berners-Lee, here. Um, and it's a huge privilege to welcome you all here. Um, when Tim and I kind of persuaded the powers that be to give this uh, place some money to establish it, um, that's one dream. The another version of the dream is as you formulate, as I spent six months formulating a business plan with the help of a lot of people to imagine what it would be like, is another dream. And then you have brilliant people who make it a reality. And I'll be handing over to one of those people, to Gavin, our CEO, in a very, very short time. But I just wanted to say, in the meantime, we're very proud of, uh, of the ODI, of the people here, and, and of what motivates them, and of the progress to date. And we're very proud of the friends and colleagues, organizations and businesses, public and sector bodies with whom we're working. We're really pleased with that. So at the ODI, we're committed to just a few things. One is to train the next generation of public technologists, to work with the public sector to make the data it publishes as good as possible. We want to train the next generation of data entrepreneurs whose ambition will be to build new companies and new services using this data. We want to work with existing corporates to help them realize the value in open data and to ensure that our work has the widest national and international impact, we have to work with the people here, with people who represent standards, with people who represent international outreach. So we're really thrilled to have the W3C, uh, the OGP representatives and uh, our friends from the OKF here tonight, because you all represent the network effect that will make this thing really happen. We're in a sense, the converted. We believe this stuff. And uh, uh, we have the great advantage over um, uh, the last person who thought he could do a job to change. One of the last, you know, to change the world was, uh, was, uh, was a man who needed 12 people to do it. Uh, we've got rather more here. And uh, um, that's why we're going to succeed. Because ultimately, we have this fantastic network effect between you and, 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 and the and the places that will make a difference. So let me hand over to Gavin, who will give you a bit more of a sense of the ODI. Thank you. Oh, what, a, what a great turnout. Well, welcome, everybody, to our uh, space here. I'm really delighted to have you all here. Uh, my name's Gavin Starks. I'm the CEO uh, of the Open Data Institute. And as Nigel said, you know, we're working here on a number of really small ideas. One is to train everybody uh, on how uh, they can get the most out of open data. And we ran our first uh, couple of courses in the last couple of weeks, so we're really delighted to have those off the ground. And Catherine is here somewhere. Catherine, where are you? Catherine? Not over there. Grab <laughs> Catherine if you're interested in learning more about training or helping us train other people. I think, as Nigel said, you know, one of the big challenges here for all of us is it might feel like there's a lot of people in this room, but we're still a tiny fragment of the number of people that need to get engaged in this space. So we all need to work together and collaborate to propagate what the value is in open data and how to achieve that. Part of our remit here is also in providing primary research. And we're really delighted that we've, we've started to sign up some private members. So the commercial sector are joining the ODI. Uh, we've just signed up Virgin Media. And our sort of delight there is not just that they're becoming members and they're giving us some money, which is always a nice thing. Um, they're also bringing data. And this is a really important part. We're seeing a trend at the moment of large companies who are getting squeezed on their own budgets, who are effectively wanting to outsource their R&D to the community. What that translates into is 
someone like Virgin Media, who's got a huge data warehouse of all of the web traffic, how can they make that open data so that everybody else can play with it? And if people succeed out of that, then they can either hire them or acquire them. So it's a different way of stimulating innovation. We're also hearing from smaller companies that they're interested in us helping them either find funding, uh, we've helped to unlock a couple of million pounds worth of funding for, for startups so far, um, but also get contracts with big companies. And we've helped some of the startups here. There are five startups in the building. All put your hands up, please, startups. Over there, over there. Yeah, yay. So we'll be adding uh, more startups in the, in the near future. We um, just a few weeks ago published our first open call for uh, startups to join, and we had 16 companies uh, submit to, to take a space here. There's lots of details on the web website, so I won't go into it now. But when we look at what kind of value we're trying to create here, one of the strengths that I've seen of, and, and people have told me about, that we have at the Open Data Institute is it's not just an incubator or an accelerator. It has a mission has a purpose, so everybody here can actually work together on how they can get the most out of, of open data. So those things combined, I think, are a really powerful force. We've got substantial funding or access to funding coming from a whole range of different sources, public sector, philanthropic sector, the venture capitalist guys are now you know, orbiting around, we're trying to work out how can we get money from them. Um, we've got startups here, we've got connections with the public sector and the private sector and with the academia. So bringing everybody together into this space is one of our functions. So please talk to each other. Please talk to people you haven't spoken to before. And I really look forward to collaborating with you in the future. Thank you very much. I know you wanted Tim. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Good evening, for those who don't know me, my name is Phil Archer. I have the honor of working for Tim. I work for W3C, as many people who work for W of ODI also work for Tim, and, and Nigel and, and Gavin and everyone else as well. Just take a minute to look around you. In this room are the people who invented linked data, are the people who hate linked data. <laughs> In the room tonight are the politicians or the people who work directly for the politicians in the Open Government Partnership who are pushing the politicians to open the data and make something magical happen. And alongside those people who are making the politicians change their mind and get round the idea of opening this data and all the problems of it's going to cost money, where am I going to get the money from, and what about if the data's wrong, and who's going to sue me if I get a figure wrong? Like, supposing someone produced an Excel spreadsheet that predicted <laughs> wasn't going to work. <laughs> who's going to get sued for that? Today, at the workshop that I've been running, I I'm not relaxed yet. I'll relax this time tomorrow. At the moment, I'm still <laughs> absolutely on edge. The workshop was designed to put people in the room who have different approaches to this thing. We all believe, all of us in this room, believe in openness. We believe in the transparency and the efficiency of government and the innovation that can come with it. But we do have different ideas about how to make that happen. And as a standards body, my job uh, is to try and bring those folk together and work out what the common problems are and then work towards common solutions. And that's what I hope will be the outcome of the workshop that we have. But I have one plea this evening. It's look around you and find someone who you've never met before, 
particularly if you're in the workshop, find somebody who you, you know wasn't in the workshop today. And if you weren't in the if you're in the OGP thing tomorrow, if you're going to be in the Open Government Partnership meetings tomorrow, look for people here. These are the people who actually make your policies happen. These, these are the techies that turn your ideas and your policies into reality. And uh, those folk are people who pay your wages, so be nice to them, all right? <laughs> these are important. And that's what we really wanted to do about this evening, particularly, was to get you in the room at the same time. And I mean it. Please talk to people you don't know. You can talk to people you do know anytime. Meet people you don't know. I've made an effort to do that this evening. Okay, enough from me. About um, three or four months ago, I was very privileged, and I, I still have to kick myself. I do kick myself. Do I do this for a living? I got a request, and I can't remember if it was from Hadley Beeman or from Dan Brickley. Either way, it's still an honor. And they said, you want to come to the pub? I said, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, who's heard of Fof? You've heard of Fof? You've heard of Dan Brickley and Libby Miller? Right, so I bought them a drink in the pub. Oh, so that's why they invited me. That's why they invited me, because I bought the round. <laughs> I've known them for a long time, and I'm very privileged to know that. And I sat there in the pub with Dan and Libby and um, somebody from the UK Parliament, who's the head of IT there, um, and Hadley. And I said, I've got this thing coming up, and I really want to organize, um, I want to get people together somehow. And it's got to be in a way where the OGP folk who don't know our lot and get them in the same room as our lot and talk to the OGP folk, how do we do it? I know alcohol. Um, <laughs> so thank you seriously to Gavin and the ODI for supporting this evening, for hosting it and providing the drink that you're enjoying and the food you're enjoying. And particularly thank you to Jade Croucher for actually organizing it. Thank you, Jade. <laughs> and we wanted to have some kind of focal point. Not me, not Nigel, not Gavin. Something that would be something to maybe make you understand this is a social occasion, it's not a work occasion. We were going to get Ben Goldacre, but you've heard Ben Goldacre. A lot of you have heard Ben Goldacre. If you've heard of anything about open data and um, bad pharmacy and bad science, then you may have heard of Ben Goldacre. Can we think of someone better? Can we find someone who's going to really be someone you haven't necessarily heard before? Don't raise your expectations. Who's really good. <laughs> and it was Hadley that suggested our guest speaker tonight. Would you please put your hands together for Tom Scott? Thank you for that. Thank you. So it's always a little worrying when your warm-up man is better than you are. Um, I called my parents the other day, and I found out something quite strange, which is that my mum is concerned that Google Street View is going to lower the price of her house. Um, it turns out that, I mean, normally when I do something like this, I'm talking about the future and kind of making grand science fictional pronouncements about this is what might happen. Um, but lately my thoughts have kind of been turning to the past and to family. Um, this isn't originally what I plan to talk about here, so you'll have to excuse the fact that I'm occasionally referring to notes. There's still ballpoint pen all over it because the final parts of this kind of only slotted together today. But in the next 10 minutes, I, I will explain how my mum fits into open data and transparency. But um, a <laughs> bit of background. Um, despite mentioning house prices, my mum is not some kind of rabid Daily Mail reader. Um, she prefers the Telegraph, mainly for the crossword. Um, until this time last year, she had never used the web, a computer, or anything like that. If you put her down in front of a computer, she wouldn't know how to use a mouse. The internet was a thing that I'd grown up with, that I'd made my living on, that my dad uses, but to her it was just a thing that was on the computer and not her concern. So last year I bought her an iPad, 
Um, and I was a bit sneaky about it, because if I'd said, this is an iPad, it'll get you on the internet, it would have ended up unused in the home office that she's still slightly resentful isn't still a dining room. <laughs> but I changed the home screen about a bit, locked it down, said, right, this is um, for catch-up TV. This button will get you the BBC. This button will get your iPlayer. This button will get you Channel 4. And she says, well, I don't really want that. Channel 4's a bit smutty. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, this button is Google, if you want to look anything up for your crosswords or something like that. <laughs> and I'll leave it there. Three weeks later, my dad tells me that, um, I mean, they've been planning to go off to Yorkshire on holiday for a little while. My dad tells me that my mum has come into, into the office, shown him the iPad and gone, can we stay here? And she's worked it out and looked it up all on her own. And she's now learning that, that TripAdvisor is reasonably trustworthy, that the Wikipedia can generally be trusted. Um, and she's gone and looked up hotels on her own, which is something that she literally could not have done short of flipping through an old travel agent's brochure. Um, she also can't believe some of the things people write in internet comments. It's shocking. <laughs> um, the thing is, my mum's avoiding the web is not a particularly rare thing. And it's a really easy thing to forget in, in the bubble that we live in. I mean, we're in the Open Data Institute, so a quick hands up. Who here has a smartphone of any description? Apple, Android, BlackBerry. I'm, there are a couple of, couple of hands down, but that's 95%. Um, in total, about half the UK population at large has a smartphone. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that everyone here who did not put their hand up, because I saw a few wry, really sort of, <laughs> nods there. Everyone has a reason. They, they like not having the always-on connectivity, or they like having the, the old brick of a Nokia that you can throw down the stairs and just piece together again. We're all in this bubble where we understand what's going on in the world, and of course Twitter's important. Of course it makes sense that an hour ago when someone hacked the AP Twitter feed, the Dow Jones plunged briefly before recovering. That happened an hour ago, and Twitter really needs to start putting better authentication on things. And of course, everyone can access government services online. 8% of adults in Britain don't own a mobile phone. <laughs> that was not a stooge, ladies and gentlemen. That was uh, that's actually about 4 million people. Um, talking about her again, my mum doesn't have a mobile phone. I mean, she technically has one, but it's, I'm pretty sure it's got lost behind the dresser somewhere. And I have to make sure that a text is sent in it every year or so, or the pay-as-you-go credit expires. Pretty much everyone involved in pushing open data forward, in pushing uh, GovUK, GDS, and ODI forward, is in the demographics you find in this room, which is wide in pretty much everything apart from technological ability. Even those of you that fumble with apps and don't have a Facebook account are still able to send an email and use the web. But we do run the risk of leaving a lot of people behind, not just parents, but anyone who isn't good with technology, anyone who can't afford a fancy smartphone or home broadband access. Open data and transparency are wonderful and brilliant, but we need to make sure that we're not just producing nice visualizations for tech sites to go over. And I say that as someone who has pretty much solely produced nice visualizations for tech sites to go over. Throwing stones are very fragile glass house here. <laughs> the other thing that, that put me onto the past and got my train of thought running this way was that I found a copy of Personal Computer World from 1993, <laughs> 20 years ago. Um, the headline article was that the new Pentium chips were just coming out, and there was a laptop with a 486DX chip that could run Windows 3.1. Big data at that point was for the Met Office and for a few universities and maybe a particle accelerator somewhere. Um, digital cameras existed, but they weren't really in common use, and incidentally, apologies 
to uh, Sir Tim there, did accidentally photobomb him earlier. Sorry about that. <laughs> Think that might actually be treason. Um, <laughs> 1993, the Palm Pilot was still three years away, let alone the smartphone, and uh, CERN had just announced that World Wide Web was going to be free to the world. The Freedom of Information Act was 12 years away. If I wanted to ask what a government department was doing, I had to write to them and hope, or I had to you know, send a letter to my MP or hope that an investigative journalist would think the same I did, or hope that a civil servant would leak some data. But I just had to take it on trust, generally. Chances are I wouldn't even know what where or, or how to ask the question. 20 years later, pretty much everyone in this room has, has a device that is literally out of science fiction, where I can type in the government department I want to know something from and send a request, and by law, they have to send it back to me. In the next 20 years, what the heck's going to come along and change us all over again? What else is about to get forced open? Um, my, my personal shot, if I take a brief sidebar here, is that we are going to head towards always-on-life logging. I, I don't think it's going to be Google Glass. I think that's going to go the way of a Bluetooth headset. You, you know how if you have a Bluetooth headset, you're either a professional driver or you're an arsehole? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fairly sure that Google Glass, you're either going to be a professional surveyor or you're going to be an arsehole. But... <laughs> There's a load of more practical ways it could be done. If Apple brings out a couple of earbuds with little cameras in the front, that's only a couple of years away. The technology's pretty much there. The cost just isn't there yet. And that solves your battery problem as well. There's a dozen other solutions I haven't even come up with there. Never mind government data. Transparency is going to be the norm for everything, at least in cities and at least in the developed world. If you compare... An I have to kind of apologise for using this analogy. It is a little bit too soon. But if you compare September 11th, 2001, when the first plane hit the World Trade Centre, in the entire city of New York, there were only two cameras turned on and pointed in the right direction. And that footage didn't surface for months later because it was analogue. Last week, when there was the explosions in Boston, there was an image of the actual moment online within a minute and video a few minutes later. There's this tendency to assume that things have always been the way that they are now, and that they always will be, that people have always been watching screens on the tube, that we've always been organising events through Facebook, and that we've always had smartphones. In my, in my head, I had a smartphone all through university. I didn't actually have any kind of phone in my first year there. Of course, our, argument, our, excuse me, of course our arguments have always been about not getting data released in PDF and not about actually getting the data released at all. And, and of course, the big problem with the Freedom of Information Act has always been vexatious requests and not the fact that we need the act in the first place. So two weeks ago, and this is why, this is why I open with this, Google updated their street view image of my parents' house. The previous version of it was taken at noon on a glorious summer's day. There are leaves on the trees, the front garden is in bloom, and everything looks wonderful. The new one was taken last November in the evening. The house is backlit. It looks gloomy. The front garden is dull and bare. And because of all the lens flares, the image algorithm hasn't quite matched the house up properly. And worse than that, the car drove by the exact week that my parents... I realise how middle class I am when I say this. The week that my parents were having their bathroom refitted. 
Which means that the canonical image of my parents' house for all potential buyers who will check it out on Street View first for the next five years features a toilet outside the front door. <laughs> and hence my mum is concerned, with good reason, that Google have just lowered the price of her house. Try explaining that to someone from 20 years ago. There's, a, there's this thing called Street View. When they've, they've driven a, cam a car with a camera down every road in the country. Well, no, it's kind, of, it's kind of an electronic camera. It works with a computer. Well, no, you can look at it on your phone. No, that's the thing you hold in your hand. That, that's only been 20 years. That's not the Victorian times. I remember that, and I've, I've still vaguely got hair. 20 years. What happens next? And I can't answer that. I can draw inferences. I can suggest that, that the death of privacy is coming and that everyone will know everything about everyone. But predictions like that tend to end up looking a bit like Disney's Tomorrowland, like the past's vision of the future. But we do know that the trend for openness, for transparency, for efficiency is not going to stop. So what I'd like to leave you with is this. Plan for it, by all means, but just make sure you don't leave my mum behind. <laughs> Thank you.